Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And today on Review the Future, we are reviewing Review the Future. So this may be a bit of a rude surprise to some of you, and for that, we apologize. The podcast in general has already morphed several times, so the fact is it's going to morph again. This is going to be the last regular Review the Future episode that we're going to do. Yeah, we have really enjoyed doing a bunch of different formats under this Review the Future name for a while now. And we've done interviews, we've done uh, lectures, we've done reviews, and we've done discussions. And all those have been interesting to do. Uh, but what we're going to do next is going to be, I think, different enough from those things that we're going we're gonna to give it its own identity. But this feed will still exist. Our Twitter will still exist. So watch this space and we will be coming back soon. And we're going to have something new for you that's going to be pretty different. It's going to be more about the making of our next comic. Uh, we hope you'll tune in for it. But before we go, we thought it'd be fun to just look back at what we've done because we've now actually been doing this thing for, for some time. A little over six years. So the first episode was posted in November of 2013. So we've put a lot of ideas to tape and uh, now we're going to look back on that and see what we think now and just kind of take stock of it all. Yeah, we thought we'd look back at what we did and, and try to maybe pick some fights with ourselves or see where our ideas have changed. That was definitely the tack I took, right? Because there's no way I was going to listen to all of our episodes, even at 1.5 times speed. No. Uh, so, you know, I had to pick them based on some criteria, and I figured, well, I could pick the ones that I like. You know, that would be nice. I would have liked to have listened to some of those. Uh, but instead, I subjected myself to something harder, which is I said, I'm going to pick the ones that I'm most likely to disagree with, either because the title of the episode sounds like maybe that's a thesis I'm not sure I'm on board with anymore, or just because they were older. I went back to a lot of our oldest episodes just to see what did this me of six years ago think, and how was that fool wrong? Yeah, I also focused on older ones because it's just less embarrassing for me to listen to the old ones. I, I remember them less well. That's <laughs> the opposite, I think, of what most people would assume. Yeah, I have more sympathy with like six year ago me than you're last more year me. Yeah, because okay. we're less similar, exactly. <laughs> Some general thoughts I had listening back is, man, those first few episodes sounded really bad and low energy. And I guess that most podcasts probably start off uh, not as good as they end. Uh, so I definitely felt like we got better. Yeah, we learned a lot. I think especially in the first 10 or so episodes, we learned a lot both about presentation and keeping the energy up and being excited when we started the conversations, but also in the audio quality. There was some experimenting that I was doing early on there that, you know, I the first few have like a lot of reverb. <laughs> yeah. Now, my general Im impression, aside from the audio quality going back, was that I feel maybe not but like I don't hold quite as strong opinions as I did at the beginning of the podcast. But mm. then when I, so I was expecting to hear a lot of like strong opinions that I would disagree with. And then I found that we, we generally did a pretty good job of, 
of qualifying things. I feel like we covered our ass relatively well yeah. for a podcast that sometimes makes ridiculous predictions. We usually we had the needed, you know, this could be it or like explored both sides. Sure. And I enjoyed some of the episodes more than I thought I would. Also, what's one you enjoyed more than you thought? There's one that's like relatively early on episode 19. What or who controls the future of decentralized technologies? And I was just prepared to hate this one. Oh, yeah. Just from the title alone. I listened to this one too. Yeah. You did listen to that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this is on yeah my- and I found actually it was it, it was more nuanced than I expected it to be. Now, I still found things to disagree with in it, but ge- generally, I, maybe I had such low expectations. Well, okay, that- so it, you probably haven't heard this episode ever or in a long time, listeners. So the, what, what that sounds like, right, when you hear that title, uh, Who Controls the Future of Decentralized Technologies, it sounds like a couple of hacker kids are about to tell you about how open source is about to save the world. Or to just like argue for we need more decentralized technologies because they are good. End of story. Right, right, right. Which I could kind of imagine a younger myself making a claim like that even. But then when I listened to it, I found that, no, we had the proper nuance because we were discussing that, okay, these uh, decentralized technologies can't be controlled in the way that like nuclear weapons can. You need a, a lot of centralized power to make a nuclear weapon. So that creates leverage points where you can maybe... Uh, prevent nuclear weapons right, from happening. Right. Well, and, and in fact, we do, right, all the time. But with these decentralized technologies, that doesn't work. But then we get into the way that decentralized technologies are controlled and, and do get controlled and are being controlled these days, which is through a combination of trusted systems like uh, your phone, where you have no control over the software it runs and the company that sold it to you can update it at any time to change the way it works. And uh, a lack of net neutrality, which is like a laughable... <laughs> thing now right uh which we were we were talking then about like yeah we've already pretty much lost this war but you know it's like there's there's always further you can go and uh of course we basically i mean we do have decentralized technologies that are being controlled in that way now yeah well so specifically with the case of computers right Right. because you know there are decentralized technologies like we discussed drugs for example that are just not very controllable and uh, it's hard to see how they will be. Right. Uh, just if, if for no other reason than demand is so high. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you talk about computers, I mean, that's the classic case where it feels like there's a lot of decentralized possibility there, a lot of decentralized power because computer processing is relatively cheap and they can do so many things. But as you just discussed, the trend that we talked about is this, you know, putting more things on the cloud, turning your computer essentially into single use toaster devices that only do one thing and can't be reprogrammed. All those trends, you know, five, six years later, feel like they have just only continued. Oh, yeah. So from from a computing perspective, it feels like any kind of decentralized dream uh, does not look good now. Right. Well, and even computing itself is less decentralized, I think, than it used to be because uh, now most of the computes are actually happening in a centralized Mm -hmm. uh, server farm. Yeah, quite literally. Uh, Literally, yeah. Like an AWS or Google server farm is doing most of the actual computing and you're carrying around a thin client that can interact with the system in in various preset ways and can show videos and stuff. It's not the computer in the same way that in the late 90s when you had a desktop computer sitting on your desk, it was the computer doing the computing for everything that you did other than compiling the code that you were running on it, I guess, you know, which was done off-site for you. So I guess one answer that we didn't anticipate is the technologies won't be as decentralized as you think, basically. There'll be a decentralized aspect of them, but they'll rely so heavily on something centralized, like a server farm, that they are controllable anyway. Did you watch this 
uh, like the last couple seasons of Silicon Valley? No, I'm a little bit behind on Silicon Valley. So the technology that they end up getting into is sort of a mesh network, like a decentralized internet. Right. And I think like that in a very public way, since I think a lot of people watch that show, you know, without saying it directly, shows like how the dreams of decentralization <laughs> very quickly die. I mean, just the fact that, okay, it's, uh, it's a decentralized internet, but of course it started by a big company mm -hmm. that has like all these forces impinging upon it. And of course it's all very silly because it's that show and it's a comedy. But I mean, I, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's so easy for, and we've talked in the past about Bitcoin. Oh, yay, that's decentralized. But okay, not really. Who owns all the Bitcoin? It's just a few people and so on. Mm -hmm. I still think that in general, how centralized something is, is like a structural quality that's important to think about. And I thought in that episode, we did a pretty good job of like using that as a framework to discuss a wide variety of things. Yeah. Including, you know, ranging from the war on drugs to the war on piracy to like modern computation. Yeah. Um. I quibbled a little bit with like how we sort of glossed over gun control because we talked about, you know, it was a news story at the time that we did that podcast about the 3D printed gun. Right. And that was a thing that was going around uh, Twitter and, and stuff saying like, oh, well, gun control is dead because you can 3D print guns. Yeah. And I feel like now I have a little bit of a different opinion on that because like we're sort of lumping that in in the technological ban category with things like drugs. Yeah. And it just it's not that comparable. Uh for, I mean, for one, just like there's demand for guns, like criminals want guns, people want guns to defend themselves, but there's not, it's not like on the level of demand for drugs or even well, smoking gun doesn't make you high. So <laughs> yeah. And I think that like, you know, creating a little bit of friction in the form of gun control could still save lives because last I saw, there's like some pretty good data that a lot of gun deaths are just suicides and a lot of those suicides are just spur of the moment decisions yeah. that had that person not had a gun like super handy had they at least had to like pirate some files and run it through a 3D printer, that might've been all the time they needed, you know, mm. to like rethink better of that. Mm. So uh, I, I would be, you know, I don't think that that's a great argument against gun control, like in that sense. There, there's all kinds of weirdness with this issue here where we live. And so, you know, I don't want to get bogged and down. And it's really in it. a very American issue, right? Because most other places just have gun control and um, it seems to work relatively well. Like it doesn't prevent all gun deaths, but they don't have the same kind of numerical problems that we have um, certainly not so yeah so i think that might be just a cultural peculiarity that we have here because uh constitutionally protected guns perhaps for faulty reasons a long time ago um <laughs> and you know and then it gets interpreted and then yeah know, that becomes maybe, a part of the culture maybe and, wrongly too yeah, yeah, yeah. uh okay uh, well hang on before we go away from this because there oh, was yeah. one other sort of uh, oh, it's yeah, not please. even a quibble but i mean I, I i'm not trying to pick a fight with us with this one but we did talk about mass surveillance and we talked about it. Oh, yeah. The idea of open society, of you mm -hmm. know, uh, surveillance or whatever. Is that the term? Uh, surveillance uh, or transparent society was, was uh, David Brin's term. David Brin's term. That's what I was trying to think of. Right. But the idea that everyone spies on everyone. We spy on the government. They spy on us. And it's, so it's at least equality of surveillance, I guess. Right. It's a, it's a method of imagining a surveillance future that is not a hellscape, mm -hmm. <laughs> basically. And uh, we made the point then that if you have that kind kind of surveillance, um, it may not be such a problem that we are going to have less privacy. Um, but if you look at what's been going on with mass surveillance in the world, and I mean, I think China is the, is the major example here, although it's happening to a lesser extent here as well, that doesn't seem to be the way it's going. I mean, it seems like the companies and, and the governments are monopolizing most of the access to surveillance. And even though 
people have cell phones and they have internet connections and there is a certain amount leaking up the other way, especially when something really outrageous happens, right? Like somebody gets killed at a traffic stop just because they're black or something like that. Then, of course, we're finding out about more of that than we used to because of people's cell phones and stuff. But it still seems very asymmetrical. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I think, I don't know if we were, I don't know if that was, because th this has been a common theme, right? Because another episode I listened to is, our third episode is Privacy Dead, which I'll talk about more in a second. Oh, yeah. And we, we did several episodes on this issue sure. of privacy. We, we kept talking about the, the, you know, it would be nice, like one of the outcomes that seems better than the other outcomes, right? Um, and And just to be clear, like maybe very quickly, what three of the very crude outcomes are, right? One is like we protect privacy at all costs, right? So we have like really strict rules, but we to make that work, we have to bake that into our technology in a very centralized fashion to bring back that word um in a way that sort of like ends up impinging on freedom in a different way, mm -hmm. right? Or we have total government like or corporate mass surveillance, which is very much the world that we're trending towards, as yeah. you pointed out. Um, and that's not good uh, because well. <laughs> that's a big concentration of power in one place that can do a lot with that to harm us. Um, or we have this more, e or we just say like, we can't protect privacy necessarily, or at least all forms of it. So we're going to have the surveillance. And, but I don't think that was ever a prediction from on our part necessarily is just like, that's the hope, right? Yeah, that's no, always right. like, like that's, that's what we're lobbying for. Yeah. I think we were advocating that's a way that things could go. That would be better. And I think so far it doesn't look like things are going that direction. We're getting a little bit of the draconian privacy protection, but only really for like the rich or for like people who uh, can bring a case before the European uh, parliament or something like that, because you know, there's a little bit of, of that sort of law stepping in to try to protect privacy a little bit. But mostly what we're seeing is just the second thing, just um, corporations and governments using our data to either sell us things or oppress us or both at once. Well, and this is something else, you know? too, that, that I feel differently about now, six years later, Okay, which is that I'm still pro-transparency yeah. because I don't see a better option. Yeah. But I'm, I'm in addition to like being skeptical about us getting transparency, I'm skeptical about the benefits of it. Yeah. You know, is sunlight really much of a disinfectant or is like, you know, there's such a glut of information out there right. that the truth can get out there and it doesn't even matter, <laughs> which is the world we seem to be living in now. Right, right. You know, I mean, there, there, I mean, especially uh, there's so many examples like here in this country where the truth of an issue is out there. Yeah. But, you know, if people don't want to hear it or if they're not on those channels of yeah. communication, it does not matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can have your own biases weaponized against you basically by some nefarious organization that wants to influence you. Uh, yeah, we're really in a sort of Borgesian, you know, library of Babel uh, or like what Adam Curtis calls hypernormalization, right? We're really in like a world where truth is no longer as powerful as it was when there were more gatekeepers. <laughs> Because when the truth got through the New York Times or something, it it resonated, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe there wasn't a lot of truth in the New York Times, but if it ever printed anything true, people took it seriously. And now it's like no no one trusts any news source except those that are the most extremely uh, like identitarian or partisan or whatever you want to call it. And so it's very hard for, yeah, the truth to penetrate. I am annoyed with myself for not picking up on that because in hindsight, it seems like this is just an inevitable consequence 
of volume, really, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just you have an abundance of options. You have mm -hmm. limited attention. Something's got to steer your attention. So whether it's like tribal affiliation or just really good persuasion tactics, that's what happens. You can't take it all in. So the truth is there and it's hiding in plain sight. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I still am not sure. I still think like, like I don't know that I would want to go back to the, you know, three network channels like New York Times makes the truth world either no I where you have the, the gatekeeper system sure uh so it's this isn't necessarily an argument that like things have gotten worse but they definitely have gotten different and yeah. in a way that makes me less confident at, that transparency does as much as i thought it would have done right right uh, a long time ago right yeah it's less powerful in this world than it was in the old world which had less of it i guess and there's just limits to it it was hard for me to see this negative possibility because it's a way that people have weaponized something I really value, which is like free speech, right? Mm -hmm. In theory, I think like a robust marketplace of ideas, uh, for lack of a better metaphor, where people, you know, say whatever thing they think and are not punished for it and they can garner uh, support is the best way to handle institutionally how people should be allowed to speak. But when it is intentionally weaponized, you have to call it into question. You have to wonder, well, is there some other way to to accomplish this? Because uh, because it seems to have been gamed now. Well, it, it, it just, I think, just changes the focus to addressing other concentrations of power, right? Because mm -hmm. the gatekeepers were the obvious bottleneck before. Right. Right? Now, okay, you take away the gatekeepers. You don't have to worry about that particular concentrated power. But now maybe it's somebody who has, you know, the, the dollars to spend to, you know, throw them at advertising and, and shape public perception that way. Or it's these giant platforms. Right. Right. It just sort of like shifts the focus of right. like who you need to be worried about. Well, and because you can't always trace where this stuff is coming from, uh, it also provides anonymous cover where before like a, a New York Times got away with, you know, making up a lot of truth or whatever it was. But uh, they had to remain relatively respectable within the elite society that they were part of. Otherwise they couldn't continue to be the gray lady and, you know, be respected. That was part of the gig. Right. And mm -hmm. now you can be like an anonymous Russian oligarch or whatever. You could be a dog with a lot of money mm -hmm. and buy yourself a, a farm's worth of trolls. Right. Right. You can do it in secret, but you know, it also just works in public. <laughs> it also works in public. Yeah. Yeah. Did you want to talk about privacy? And I want to talk about our first three episodes in particular because they're all three kind of foundational topics that we came back to over and over again. Right. And and pretty much started the podcast to discuss. So that third episode is Privacy is Dead. I still agree with what I think is like the main takeaway thesis from that, which was we define something called de facto privacy, yeah. right? Which is basically uh, sometimes called the privacy of anonymity, right? It's not the privacy of your diary, it's the privacy of, you know, you live in a big city and no one knows what you did on Saturday night because you, you know, they can't track it and, you know, it's not in their interest or uh, uh, technological capability to do so. Right, right. Uh, and, you know, we were basically just saying, like, that is going away, right? Like, with all of the sensors out there, it's very plausible that if you have, you know, a conversation in a crowded bar with one person... Uh, on one day that, you know, your boss could look that up maybe a week later and like in a searchable fashion on the internet. We're certainly not in that world yet. Yeah. But I mean, it does feel like every day we get a little closer. Yeah. And I still think that prediction is basically right. 
I don't see what the defeaters to that are. Right, right. Yeah. At this point, it's more like you get posted by your friend on Instagram when you didn't think it was a good picture of you or something, but you can very easily see that unfolding out to, you know, your every move is searchable. Um, both your online moves, which are already incredibly searchable, uh, and it, this is totally opaque to you, right? Your your search history and your um, mm-hmm. your browser history and stuff is just being bought and sold at all times. I mean, it's uh, that's happening. Multiple companies are involved in that sort of at all times uh, behind the scenes, and that'll happen to your physical reality as well relatively soon. Um, right. And those things will converge too. You'll spend more of your time doing things online, you know. Now, you know, you could say, all right, now, I mean, certainly if you're on your computer, right, what you're doing, uh, it, all of that is logged by the companies, right? Yeah. It's not necessarily logged by your neighbor. Um, so I think maybe that stays, to, you know, private except to Google, right? Uh, but, you know, as far as your, your GPS coordinates, your movements in the world, anywhere right. where a person could have seen you and logged you, right. who maybe opted into the, uh, like, a, like a life logging system that you didn't necessarily log into, right. that's the, the sort of hole through which you know, the privacy leaks out, kind of regardless of what the companies do or what people want. Right, right, right. The way that like, people can stalk you online now if they know your friend's uh, accounts or something. Yeah, same idea. Right. And uh, that's an interesting distinction. I don't remember whether we made that in the original um, episode. but Maybe not. So that's a little more it, complicated than we probably Yeah. Made. Like, I feel like there's a, a privacy that's like um, something is not publicly available. And then there's a privacy that's like something is not privately exploitable. Right. And those are different things. Like my search history getting turned into ads by Google, you know, they're privately exploiting some private data of me, mm-hmm. they are doing it themselves. They're not exposing it to others out other than themselves mm-hmm. versus, uh, you know, what Instagram does if you post a picture of me and tag me in it is like it facilitates... Um, facilitates just normal people knowing your business if they want to. Exactly. Broadcasting me. Yeah. Right. Right. And, you know, I don't think we made that distinction. So that's a good criticism, but we didn't do that. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, up until now, it's mostly been, yeah, Instagram or things like that where people opt into sharing. Um, I think, you know, again, we don't have the constant life logging yet. I think that's that's the real game changer as far as that being even more uh, relevant. Right, right. And it seems like data and storage are still the bottlenecks there. So maybe we'll see that that will change, you know, sometime soon. So let's go back to, to episode one. Okay. Right. Because, again, this is a very foundational episode. This one was literally called, Is Technological Progress Accelerating? Well, right, because that's the question. If you don't have a tentative yes to that, then there's not much point in predicting the future. It'll just be like now. <laughs> well, I still think there's point in predicting the future, even if you you know, don't think the technology, uh, technological progress is accelerating. Oh, but it, but it, makes it, more, it makes it more relevant, I think. Um, yeah. So... Um, so first of all, okay, we had. I thought listening back to that episode. Did you listen to this one? No. Okay. I did not. I, so like, I think our framework for looking at this was solid. If you want to figure answer this question, which like is in danger of sort of just becoming a semantic question if you're not careful, there's like three approaches, right? Okay. So one approach is subjective, right? Like, what does it feel like to you? And that's where we were saying, like, well, it feels like in our lifetimes, it feels like 
things are accelerating, right? Yeah. And the point in time we point out that, you know, other people like Tyler Cowen don't feel that way, right? right? But they, a lot of times what they're saying just amounts to nothing more than a subjective argument. So that can, that's wishy-washy and, you know, you feel what you feel. That's fine. Um, and then we said, okay, what about empirical arguments, right? And there, at the time that we were doing this podcast, and this, this art conversation has kind of died down uh, online, as far as I can tell, or maybe I'm not following the right people. Mm. Uh, but there was a lot of discussion about, you know, different economic metrics, like whether it's productivity right. or it's the median wage uh, or, or whatever it is, right? The GDP growth you know, that would track whether or not technological progress is accelerating. And then, you know, the short answer is most of them don't show accelerating progress. Right. But we also kind of felt like that's not, I mean, depending on how you define this term, technological progress, which is admittedly slippery. Right. uh, Those like sort of economic metrics maybe don't capture everything. They all have their own flaws. Maybe none of them are perfect stand-ins. Yeah. It doesn't really make sense. And there's all these other methods like, oh, you count patents or... You count important inventions as like picked by a bunch of academics, right? And we basically said like all those don't make that much sense to us. But what makes sense to us, at least in the current day and age, is computing power. Yeah, that's a number. You can check that out. Right. Well, all these are numbers, but that one seems like, like, I mean, the way we got there is if you define technology as like the, the ability to use tools to fulfill functions. Sure. Then like... The computer is just like a tool that adds new functions to it literally every day. Yeah. Right? So, then this metric is totally useless if you want to look at historical technological change in the past. Right? It has nothing it's, to say right. about a pre-computer era. It's, yeah, it's useless b- before 1950 or so. But if you want yeah. to look at the modern era, it yeah. feels like if you track computing power because the computer is sort of swallowing everything, which is something I still believe, although maybe not quite as bullish on it as I used to be, uh, then that should be a pretty good indication of whether you're literally doing more functions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at a faster and faster rate, right? Which is, feels to me closer to the essence of the question than some economic metric. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure many people would disagree with that take. Um, pro- primarily economists <laughs> would probably disagree with that because mm-hmm. it kind of like doesn't take their work as seriously as they'd probably like. But I think, I still think that makes some amount of sense. Yeah. And on that metric, right, I mean, as we discussed in our, like, recent episode looking at Kurzweil, who appears to be right now at least 10 years behind his predictions, yeah, uh, Moore's Law is kind of faltering, or it appears to be, right? Um, well, it depends on, like, where you're focusing your effort. But, yeah, if you're talking about, like, desktop computing, then, yeah, for sure, Moore's Law is done. I mean, it's it's still improving, but it's not improving at the extremely fast rate that it was before yeah since about 2010 it's not been yeah it's 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 improving at a slower rate yeah and apparently there was like another like rate change at around 1975 because the original predictions from 65 so he had to revise it in 75 yeah so you put that together with the data now and maybe it's always been like a slowly decelerating thing on that level right right? which would make some logical sense because there'd be more low-hanging fruit in terms of stuffing more transistors onto a die early in the process now we're getting to the point where we're literally running out of um molecular lanes to put these um conduits in yeah and so you know i mean i don't want to get too much into the weeds on that again because we've discussed that but i think that that is a reason to have pause, right? I mean, by our own framework there that we proposed back in that first episode. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
six years later, I mean, because, you know, that was 2013. I mean, this trend would have been visible then, but it's much more visible now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, people started talking about it around 2010 or something, right? Like, is more, you know, and it's been more and more evidence that basically on the desktop, Moore's Law is over. And if you look at the vanguard of chip-based stuff, you're still seeing improvements in those devices, but we're basically running to the end. It honestly feels even to me, and this is, I don't think that my logical suppositions about what's possible have changed that much over the last six years, but I feel like the biggest change for me since we started the podcast is just how much I subjectively feel like things are accelerating. So the subjective measure is slowed for you as well? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Like to me, I feel slight, slightly less... Less future shock? Less future shock in the... Uh, Words of Alvin Toffler. Toffler uh, phrase. Right. Exactly. Um, than I did s- six years ago. And just like one anecdotal example of that feeling is like, I feel like when we first started this podcast, we would routinely get into conversations with people in which we would mention self-driving cars and people would have their minds blown and we'd have like to stop everything and have a long discussion about why that was a possible thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And of course now self-driving cars are like a semi reality. They're out there in the road. Some of that is knowledge though. Yeah. People have been exposed to them. So they know that they are a thing. People know that like Tesla's have some self-driving capabilities and stuff. What makes me subjectively feel like, Hmm, maybe things aren't, going as fast as they used to is how come there's not another thing like that that's taken its place that like how come when i talk to people right it's you know what i mean like what's it's the like, next thing and is it just that we're not following enough like blogs to get that info maybe you guys are going to write in and say you don't know about this you yeah, know yeah yeah uh, maybe that's it i hope that's it in a way because i hope i'm wrong about this but i feel like there haven't been the way that natural language processing and self-driving cars were, and 3D printing too, which is something- And we are I'm still just getting used to smartphones. Less, less bullish on now than I was when we started the podcast, but uh, we can get into that in a minute. Well, and VR, which we've never been that bullish on, but like- And VR, yeah, yeah. But, but also we were still just like get adjusting to smartphones, I think. Like, yeah. Like, so like all of those things like came kind of Right. Quick. Smartphones and tablets had been around- what for less than five years like uh the iphone is 2007 right so in, it was like six years in 2013 yeah. and we're talking about you know well what if this could drive a car basically we're talking about this like you know seemingly far future thing and then six years later we're saying well what if this could drive a car you know i mean it's like it seems like there were a bunch of really powerful new ideas about what might, might be possible in the future you know uh self-driving cars sort of replaced the idea of flying cars or like some you know what i mean uh, from the previous wrong-headed ideas of the future that have yeah. been coming up in the atomic age. And then in the last uh, six years, uh, it doesn't feel to me like we've had a new generation of even better ideas to replace those in the same way. Like it used, to, I used to have that experience too, where I'm like, oh, I guess my camera does face recognition now. Whereas like now I'm like, oh, I guess it does it a little better now. You know, like I don't have these like, th- like rec- realizations that like, oh my gosh, they can do that now. Right. Uh, for quite a while, right? Or like you know, maybe since yeah, the first couple years of this podcast, so like, about four years ago. Like the best technological thing that I think happened to me in the last month or something was I I got a new car and it's one of these new cars where you can plug your phone into the car and the phone will take over the car's stereo. Yeah, and that just seems like really small, right? And it's like all that they did is they did they just integrated two things that were already working so that now they work a little better together and 
no new features were introduced except just everything works a little smoother and it's just better than it was before when I had two devices doing this. Okay. Right? So, <laughs> but it's like, it doesn't feel like a change in the same way, you know? All right. So this is not looking good, right? Because like, okay, so the, our framework had three points to it. Subjective, yeah. which you're saying uh, feels like that's slowing down. And I, you know, as you bring it up, I'm inclined to maybe agree. I think it's still a little early. I need like another four years or so to really... Dial in my emotions there, but to be fair, I'm saying the rates slowing down a little. Not that progress is slowing down, but just the you know it doesn't seem as whip fast as it felt six years ago. I I agree with that. Empirically, we 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 sort of decided that like you know computation was one of the big main metrics, and Moore's law is not in great shape. Not looking great, and we don't we don't see the next paradigm yet. Yeah. Um, Again, maybe we're not talking to the right people. Let us know if we're wrong about that. Um, and then the third point to our argument was the logical case, right? Was the the uh, systemic case of, you know, uh, technology is a feedback loop, right? We listed, okay, the inputs to technology are people. They are previous inventions. They are communication tools. They are education, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So right. like time. It, and all of those things produce more of themselves, right? Right. So uh, it just make, and a lot of those things have just been historically increasing. Right. Right. So it seems like, you know, through the logic of a feedback loop that you would expect uh, technological progress to accelerate. I'm sort of badly and yeah. quickly paraphrasing that, but you can go listen to that episode. But even that, I think, you know, you you and I both read the, that article on Slate Star Codex. We were always going to talk about it on the podcast, and we never did. And, and granted, this is just one article from a blogger, but it was called uh, 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 1960, uh, the year the singularity was canceled. So... In that article, I mean, it's it's speculation, right? But the short answer is, if people are an input to technological progress and innovation, which has absolutely got to be the case. Right. More minds contemplating a problem means more potential solutions. That's the basic concept. Right. Like, the more people you have, the more likely one of them is the next inventor. Right. Then the demographic transition is not good for that. Right. I mean, the fact that the most developed countries in the world that, like you know, are best poised to make the innovations right now just because they have a lot of resources. Right. Are slowing down their birth rates. Yeah. Uh, While at the same time restricting their immigration, right? Yeah. So they're not replacing it that way. And yeah, that is that is causing perhaps a, a lack of access to resources for the very people or a lack of existence for the very people who might be inventing the next great thing. People should look at the article. There's a lot of graphs and and, and detailed discussion, but it sort of boils down to that. It sort of boils yeah. down to like at a certain point, the demographic transition started. It looks like maybe population might even stabilize by the end of the 21st century. That's one of the things that plausibly has been historically driving our technological progress has literally been people make technology which allows us to make more people which allows us to make more technology and that by having less people we're kind of uh we're kind of weakening that yeah uh, but that's a tricky one because you can't force people i mean you can but you morally should not force people to breed so w- one th- way that we maybe get out of that eventually is if we can emulate minds right yeah and and, and the article ends up by saying like uh if you can't turn people into innovation we we just use like dollars to make ais that then make innovation right right well and then emulated minds is the more extreme thing i mean that literally creates a potentially a population explosion right then you could copy the most useful people 
millions of times or however many times you can afford to. But so there, I mean, there are ways out out of this, and there's also like additional factors that are relevant, like you know how many, what percentage of the population is composed of researchers that would find the next technological innovation that's been increasing versus like how hard is it to come up with the newest technological innovations? Does it get harder over time? I mean, there's other factors, but you know, all things being equal. Uh, less people, if we don't suddenly come up with AIs that can do research, is maybe not a good trend. Right, right. Yeah, that could be a major defeater to this uh, virtuous cycle of yeah. uh, technical um, improvement. And it still seems like technology will improve. It's not like we're going to like come to a cr- crashing halt. But we may not get the kind of exponential progress that we Well, it's we just expecting. like linear progress, right? right? I mean, it... That's, I mean, that's not accelerating, right? Right. right. Uh, or, or even, you know, l- less than linear. Or, or something that's accelerating a little, but not very much. Yeah, yeah. We are hoping that we get this really fast progress because that would bring some of the really exciting and powerful technologies into existence during our lifetimes, right? I mean, that's the main reason to be excited about, um, you know, near-term future. Yeah, stuff. but the, you know, the downside to, you know, the the Kurzweilian vision is that, you know, all of a sudden we have to deal with these huge issues yeah, of AI right. uh, and we haven't had much time to, like, process them. So, you know, the silver lining is maybe we get a little more time to actually adapt to things. Right. Well, yeah, one possibility, I think we sort of mentioned this in our Kurzweil review episode, is like, you know, one possible consequence of Kurzweil being wrong is that culture actually gets the time it needs to adapt to some of these changes. Yeah. So there you have it. We're no longer confident that uh, technological progress is accelerating. Hence, we have to shut down the podcast. Yeah, more or less. I mean, I, it just doesn't feel like it is royal, rolling along at the same rate that it maybe was for, you know, the first 20 years of my life. Now, I think that could easily uh, get jump started again, though. And all it would take is something as simple as a paradigm shift in computing, right? Like if... Uh, Intel came out with an announcement tomorrow that like they figured out 3D chips and, you know, or they figured out some other, you know, carbon nanotube based processing or something that's going to be way faster than what they've got now. We'd be right off to the races again. Although maybe the person who was going to invent that never got born. <laughs> Just the, that, right? that's the yeah, that would that things. would be that would be bad. Yeah, I was trying to look up like the way that they put it at the end of this article. Um, but he was basically saying, like, the singularity got, this is like the one of the later paragraphs, the singularity got canceled because we no longer have a surefire way to convert money into researchers. But AI <laughs> potentially offers a way to convert money into researchers. So, like, AI could be the way out, or like you said, just a paradigm shift in, in chips. Um, yeah, I don't know. but And I would also add that on the subjective side of this, right? Yeah. I, you know, there's also the business cycle, right? Like, we've been, like, recovering from a recession um for much of the podcast yeah life so you know that might be playing a role as well on a it's micro true. scale that it's like, true. doesn't affect the larger trends so the other like foundational topic uh-huh. right which we got to in episode two right and again came this back one to I did listen to came back to over and over again is should we be worried about technological unemployment right because again this was like one of our major major sort of impetuses for getting into this game in the first place right was that you know you and I met back in college. We got interested in Ray Kurzweil and in futurism. We started talking about nanobots and stuff on the regs. And then one day we realized like, holy shit, what are people going to do for work? Yeah. And it <laughs> seemed like really 
fringe then, and uh, then for a moment it got a lot of attention. I, I probably reached its peak with you know with with the uh, Brynjolfsson and McAfee's book, right? Race Against the Machine. Yeah. Uh, now it's in kind of a weird cultural space, right? Well, look, we got Debated. a major presidential candidate running on a. Yeah, and I do on, want to talk on, about running that. Running on it. I mean, you know, regardless of you and I both have feelings about Andrew Yang, and we can discuss them, but uh, I mean, he's a part of the mainstream conversation now and he's yes. walking around quoting Bernie Olfson, uh, and McAfee. He uses one of their phrases and he is promoting a UBI, which is uh, a, a policy proposal that uh, they were kind of late to, but that people like Martin Ford uh, uh, supported um, from a long time. Yeah. Let's ago. just congratulate ourselves on that. Cause we've been talking about UBI for a long time and that definitely has, has floated into the cultural consciousness in a big way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we found it in that, Ford book, right? In the the lights in the tunnel. Oh, I don't know when I first encountered it, but I feel like that's the first time I'd ever heard of it, and I thought it was pretty out there. But the more we talked about, it, the more we thought this actually sounds like a way of keeping some of the good parts of capitalism as uh, scarcity uh, dissolves. It also is just like a pretty good design for an anti-poverty program, I think, because it's not paternalistic and it seems easy to uh, administer. So if you just wanted to do an anti-poverty program for moral reasons not thinking about jobs or anything. It also seems like a pretty That's good the idea. thing about it is remember we had Scott Santens on. He's yeah. like that big online basic income advocate. And yeah, I mean he kinda like covered I, I mean in a way it's like there's different paths that get you there. Right. Right. I mean that's what's interesting about the proposal and, and maybe like why it's sort of like actually been around it's actually been around a while and maybe now why it's like sort of resurfacing. Mm-hmm. Um, is you get there via technological unemployment. You also just get there via not liking poverty. You also get there via strains of libertarianism that want to like cut the social safety net. So there's many roads, some conservative, some liberal, some, you know, yeah. technologically concerned that end up there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like there's a lot of people who are sort of on the left edge of left or the right edge of right in the tech space, like just a lot of libertarians and very strong leftist liberals in in tech. And so there's a lot of overlap of the people who'd be interested in something like that. And now you've got somebody who, you know, he's a long shot, obviously, but he's a serious presidential candidate and uh, he's out there and that's his primary issue. Well, basic income is, I think he's catapulted basic income into the discussion more so than technological unemployment. But he talks a lot about truck drivers losing their jobs. I mean, he talks about specific instances of technological unemployment. He talks a lot about um, people losing jobs in factories as as uh, jobs have been moved overseas or or gotten automated, and uh, he I think correctly lumps in uh, various types of globalization and automation because they're almost interchangeable. It's true. I mean, there's like that conversation about like you know is it is it technology or is it the outsourcing, and it, you know they are related. Well, and like in a yeah, way. outsourcing and globalization are. Uh, results of a technology called shipping. <laughs> it's like that's a technology. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, there's logistics and shipping had a, a revolution in the '90s when they brought computers into it, and now you can get containers very easily all around the world. And well, and globalization translates that. also into you know the superstar effect. Yes, yeah, it feeds more into that. Yeah, which to me is like one of the most robust ideas. Uh, for me personally, to sort of like come out of this discussion. And that's a Brynjolfsson McAfee thing too. Right? I mean, that's where I encountered it. Again, yeah. I don't, I think there were some papers they were pulling that from. Um, and that's just the basic idea that, you know, when you have technology essentially enabling like communication on a broad scale, 
it, it sort of like lumps everybody into the same market, right? I mean, you're not, if you're a corner store, you're competing against, you know, other like establishments in that town. Right. But if you're, you know, the equivalent of a corner store on the internet, then you're competing against the world's retailers. Well, then and, you're Amazon, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or you're Amazon or you're, or you're, you know, competed out of existence. Right. Um, so, and you know, the same is true for art, you know, if you like, uh, if you make music on the internet, right, you know, why should people listen to the second best musician if they can listen to the best, you know, that's, that's one way to put it. Right. Why, right. why, why, why settle for second best? Right. Right. You can right. Yeah. Touch everything in the world. Well, you're competing in a global market, then being even just a little bit better can win you all of the customers yeah. too. So there's not an incentive to be a lot better. There's just an incentive to be a little better. I will say though, that on this issue, mm-hmm. and I've always been... Going back, I realized like I've always been kind of skeptical about it because it was always a debate. And like very early on, we did that episode on, you know, things that stay scarce where we sort of like listed a bunch of things. That, yeah, you know, that's one that I, I listen to and that I uh, like. Yeah, I like I still like that episode. That's still one of my favorites, actually. Um, and I just, you know, I, I think I am pretty skeptical. Um and I, 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 I think I was, I was more so at the beginning than I thought, but I'm even more so now of the like strong technological unemployment vision. Um, you know, now some of that is tied into the earlier question we were discussing of accelerating technological progress. The more, the faster the technology comes on, right. you know, the more likely that you just have frictional unemployment that might as well be structural because it's there's so much churn that you know people can't get a you know even retrain fast enough, right? Right, right. So so there's still that, but I mean if if we imagine that, you know, technological progress isn't accelerating quite so so fast, then I feel like what is very real and what you do see in the actual arguments in the Bernie Olfson and the Caffey book and even in people that are on the other side of the political spectrum, like, you know, Tyler Cowan or whatever, that are more like an average is over, which is another early book we discussed a lot on the podcast, um, is it contributing to inequality. Not necessarily to like full scale, like there's no work for humans anymore. Right. But just like, uh, y- you know. More superstar economics. Downward wage pressure. Yeah. yeah. Superstar economics. You know what the, they, they also call like, you know, increased bounty, but also increased spread. Right. 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 That's the Vinyolfson. And That's like their sort of funny right. way of putting it, which I like. Cause yeah. It's, it's a little less ideologically loaded, but. Um, right. So if a lot of the bounty is going to like the. One percent of the one percent, yeah, and you know the spread has to increase. Yeah, to, yeah, or right. the value of capital rel- going up relative to the value of labor faster. Right, the value of high skill labor going up relative to the value of low skill labor. All these are trends that don't necessarily indicate that everyone's going to lose their job. It just indicates that the poor are going to get poorer, the rich are going to get richer, and and the evidence on that is pretty un- incontrovertible. Right, that does seem to be happening. I mean, um, not necessarily that it's caused by technology. I don't know that that's an open and shut case. But clearly those trends are visible, whereas we don't see... Right. It's harder to pick out like an increase in unemployment over time, you know. I mean, I think there's labor participation and things that I know you've looked into. Yeah, I mean, right now unemployment's very low in America. um, And and I think around the world it's generally low. And that's a function primarily of the economy, right? I mean, uh, things are doing okay, so that's why people are hiring. Uh, Demand is relatively strong um but there's churn obviously from technology and it's still a question as to whether that's about to get way worse because those two technologies that we were concerned about then were self-driving and just more generally computer vision systems you know all the all manner of computer vision 
and natural language, right? And right, those like call centers, call centers, uh, you know, Siri type technologies taking over jobs that are now done by humans. And I mean, those do still, despite my earlier feeling that things aren't going quite as fast as they used to be, those two things do definitely seem like they're coming. And I mean, those are already kind of like locked they're, in. They're right? here. They're, they're being they're deployed. on a trajectory. They're on a trajectory. They're currently in that part of the trajectory where they're very expensive in the case of the self-driving cars. Uh, and and developing the natural language apps, I'm sure, is very expensive still now. Uh, and they don't work tremendously well yet. Like the self-driving cars are only in pilot programs, and the series of the world are somewhat useful, getting more useful every day, but not that useful. Not useful enough to replace uh, a use a, a visual user interface at this mm-hmm. point, right? Um, for most things, uh, I guess they have those little speakers that you talk to. I actually have some of those, and um. I find them very frustrating to use. Uh, they they require you to really formulate your commands specifically. Sometimes interacting with one of those things is kind of like doing like an old text adventure game where you have to like sure. guess like, wait, do I have to say strike match or can I do I have to say use match? You know, how do I get this? Yeah, which you should check out. <laughs> you should check out AI Dungeon. Okay. Which is this like web uh text adventure game where you like type in whatever you want but it's totally controlled by machine learning oh <laughs> that, like gen- that's just like scrubbed all this text on the internet and like generates a story on the fly that like does seem to build upon what you're saying but in like really bizarre ways weird like it doesn't actually like impress you that like you know the ai is like smart enough to be like a good storyteller or dungeon master mm-hmm but it does, it is very funny. It is like a good example of using AI to make like weird ephemera and art. Right, like happy accidents. I right? mean, you can yeah, almost just yeah. troll the like Reddit uh, like channel. And, like, that's watch like, other people. And, and just like people just constantly post their screenshots like look at this ridiculous interaction <laughs> I had with the, the computer. <laughs> that um, sounds fun, yeah. That's a, that's a bit of a tangent. But I mean, you know, that even that, even though it's like like weird and, and, uh, and janky, um the fact that that even works as well as it does and that it's basically made by a hobbyist i mean i think still goes to the point that the natural language processing is getting way better yeah absolutely Um, yeah so i mean these things are getting better it may be that we are just a few generations of technology away from those two things hitting the economy and creating a lot of uh change now I, i i think both of us have always been pretty skeptical that this is going to like literally wipe out 50% of jobs. Right. Like I don't think there's any world where that happens. Uh, I mean, we wrote a graphic novel let go, which I'm sure you're familiar with listeners, uh, which is sort of set in a world of, we make that that assumption of technological um, uh, progress where like human workers just across the board are more or less obsolete and that there are basically no regular workers anymore. But even when we were making that assumption, that was for dramatic purposes. We wanted to take it as far as we could take it. We didn't really think that that was likely to happen in that way. I mean, that was sort of our like first starting assumption that you have to make. And then we tried to make it, you know, relatively plausible from that starting assumption. Yes. But that was like a big leap to start with. Yeah. What what I was worried about then and what I still remain worried about is this. During the Depression, unemployment was 25%. I mean, roughly. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody had numbers back then. They didn't really start doing those kind of numbers until after the depression. It was the depression that caused them to start doing those numbers. But it was basically about 25% with the labor force participation being fixed at like, you know, a high percentage of men and no women. 
basically. Since then, labor force has changed. Other things have changed. The exact meaning of the statistics is a little bit different. But if we were to get to the equivalent of 25% unemployment, our society would collapse, <laughs> right? I mean, like that I still think is a risk. It may not happen. I don't think it's likely to happen. I wouldn't give it a more than 50% well, likely. Well, just a like a, a big market crash of the sort that we get periodically. Yeah, Capitalism could do that. I mean, you know. 25% I don't think has like, you know, ever happened during other than the Great Depression. Yeah, but I wouldn't I mean, say never. You no, know, no, I mean, no. I mean, it would be pretty remarkable. But if we were to have, for example, uh, a market crash at the same time as um, all call center employees, like today they are not replaceable by software and then tomorrow they are, right? I mean, this is not totally impossible. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and I agree with you on the level of there are these... That could be like a societally devastating reality, even though it would not constitute full technological unemployment. Well, and it could be extremely painful for huge swaths of the population. Yeah. Right, which is, you know, an area of concern, right? And I, I would not like... And I think that, you know, it, to some extent, that's maybe what yang is speaking to um and that part i definitely agree with i mean you know it just you know if a whole bunch of truck drivers lose their job and that's a huge swath of people that are really hurting right like and having like a really painful generational transition yeah right yeah maybe like in the big picture uh more jobs are created but it's not those same people necessarily right um you know, that's still a lot of pain and suffering that might need to be society's gonna have to deal with, right? Like like you said, like the figure does not have to be fifty percent or necessarily even twenty five percent for it to be like an issue that we need to contend with. Right. That twenty five percent is like a threshold that I'm fairly certain we can't cross. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, uh it could be lower than that, right? But I think we've survived up to about nine percent. Uh, unemployment with our current labor force participation rate, which is, you know, whatever it is, 65, yeah. 70%, whatever it is, because um, it includes most women now, you know. Um, uh, so, and that, sur we survived that. We did not have societal collapse. Nobody um, uh, revolted in the streets or anything like that. Um, but there's some amount of of unemployment that will be that devastating. And so that's what I think we need to watch out for I don't think it needs, I don't think you need to have any sense that we will ever eliminate jobs completely to be worried about that. Um, but no, I think if you look at what's going on in the world right now, it seems like, honestly, if anything, you know, our, our technical progress could be a little better. We could be doing, uh, we could be automating stuff a little faster. We could be getting a little bit more uh, computing power. Right. And I think the technology is generation. plausibly. Uh, to the extent that we are having progress uh, fast or not could, could be contributing to inequality. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, could I mean, you know, talking about technological inequality versus technological unemployment, it's just a slight pivot. The solutions I think are potentially different or not. I mean, a basic income well, maybe addresses both. Exactly. So, especially if you tax um, uh, the technology to fund it or tax the people who benefit from the technology to fund it. Right, so then you're just redistributing some of that unequal gain. Uh, yes, I think that's true. Um, so now, 
I mean, and all, so, so I, you know, I still worry about like these short-term transitions and particularly like market sectors and like, you know, the things that you're talking about. Um, and I also still think, you know, on the long term, you will have a human equivalent AI mm-hmm. that will potentially put everyone out of work. Yeah. Uh, if we could suddenly emulate minds, why hire a human? I get that. Yeah. Uh, I just think that like, there's not, I used to see, I think more of a, a smooth transition between those things. Um, I still think there's a smooth transition in the sense that like the technology has to progress through the steps, right? Like you can't have like a superhuman AI necessarily, or even a human level AI before you have like an almost human level AI. Right, right. Uh, I still think that's true, but I don't think like that necessarily the economy gets as affected as you would think in this like total fashion until you have the true human equivalent. Because I just think like, I mean, again, if you listen to that episode of things that stay scarce and you think about like how much of this is culturally determined in terms of like what services people want or ask for and the fact that we're pretty married to this capitalism thing. It's going to be pretty hard for us to get off of it. And, you know, people are going to chase dollars and they're going to chase dollars in creative ways because that's the system they're in. Mm -hmm. Like, and, you know, to some extent, the system can't tolerate things that destroy it. So, you know, it's going to have to adapt on some level, right? I mean, so I just think like there's a lot of, and we can do make work if we have to, and then we can do artificial scarcity if we have to. And I'm not, you know, saying I'm in favor of those things, but I think we'll do them if we have to. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just think like there's a lot of work to be done and to be created if necessary, you know, right up until that moment that you actually have the human equivalent AI. And then I think you have much bigger issues at that point. Right, right, right. Well, then there's a lot of dangers and potential benefits at that moment. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit like what we talked about with the Dr. O book, Walkaway, that we, our very last review, which is, uh, you know, He's imagining a bifurcated world where there's a sort of hypercapitalism driven by technology. And then because material abundance has roughly been um, met, uh, not AI at the start of the book, but r- material abundance with like, you know, matter printer type stuff, uh, there are these people that are trying to forge a non capitalist path, but it is very difficult. It requires deprogramming, it doesn't always work. It's a sort of haphazard ad hoc society. Um, and then into that world, then AI comes, which is a you know the most interesting part. Right, of the story. right, right, right. But but uh, you know that that's kind of um, it's interesting to see. You know, he's imagining that now. Doctoro is, and when he was writing twenty years ago, uh, when we were first starting to get into this stuff, like in uh, Down Out in the Magic Kingdom, he was imagining a world where capitalism had been utterly defeated by post-scarcity and everything is run by these ad hoc committees and everything is very anarchist utopian Mm -hmm. and i think he's revised his own views now of like well maybe that happens eventually but first there's gonna be this painful period where like the capitalists are trying to hunt the anarchists (laughs) well i also think that you know the for his dramatic effect in his story he paints a really bifurcated society yeah to the extent in that book we see the hyper capitalist side of things it does seem like people are taking the subway, they're going to jobs, they're working at startups, like, you know, they're part of the normal hustle and bustle. They are doing things, right? Yeah. Whether yeah, it's yeah. like building weird zeppelins or whatever, yeah. you know, that's kind of an absurd job, but, you know. Yeah, they seem to have jobs dealing with environmental crises and, you know, dealing with computing and stuff like that. 
Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I just think there, there there's a lot of there's a lot of middle ground there to have a lot of abundance and still have people chasing dollars in all kinds of ways and like inventing new demands yeah. in all kinds of ways. I mean, and, and again, that's I think that's the thing I feel is just it's so culturally determined. I right. mean, yeah, okay, like maybe. I mean, if we, you know, we could sort of not work now if we wanted to. We're not doing that, right? We're not like shortening the work week. Right, right. And they are in places like France. So it's, it is determined by the culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm talking about the US, I guess, with that particular sentence, but yeah. Right. We want to talk about, since we keep bringing up this uh, episode 10, the, the things that remain scarce. So the concept of this episode, we should just lay it out as we listed, these are things that even if you had your your perfect matter printer that prints whatever you want in your your home right. ranging from food to tools to computers to, uh, matter to clothes printers. right the, you know <laughs> the, the, the kind of again this is straight out of walk away yeah you've got the matter printer yeah and you've also got human equivalent ais you know we're going to sort of like hand wave away whether they're conscious or not but like they're sure. doing all the service jobs right you need a massage a robot will do that for you right um so then we were like, well, okay, so what are people still going to find scarce in this world that is going to drive an economy? And we came up with 14 things. I don't know that the categorization is perfect, but I think all those things are still pretty relevant. I'm not going to list them all because you guys should go listen to that episode. It's one of, the, one of the ones I would recommend. It's episode 10. I'm surprised we didn't just cap it off and make it 15 because the one we didn't mention is just artificial scarcity where you just, you know... You just use intellectual no, property That would have law. been better. Then we could have called it the 15 things that I mean, remain scarce. I mean, 15 is a better number. Yeah, that was dumb of us. What were we thinking? It um, could have been a listicle. Damn yeah, it. Yeah, so that was my main criticism. It was yeah. like, oh, pretty good episode, but this really should have been 15. Yeah. I also think like since that episode, um, I think we were already aware of that at the time because piracy figures large in our thinking, mm. right? Because, you know, that was, and again, we're talking six years ago. It was recent history that we had just seen what had happened to the music industry yeah, uh, via digitization and piracy. So that was like really fresh in our minds. Sure. And I think at the time we were sort of like understanding that that we are transitioning out of that sort of Napster era pretty hard into the like convenience Spotify era. Yeah, I think Netflix had already shown that like a convenient product will beat piracy. But it feels point. like that even more so. I mean, I was that's the one thing I was struck listening to that thinking like we talk a lot about, you know, as if piracy is this rampant easy thing. Right. And the thing about that is, especially with the technology like BitTorrent, again, if BitTorrent it's talking about positive feedback loops, like the network effects are critical to the design of that thing, right? Like right. I mean, the less people are pirating, the harder it gets to pirate things on yes. BitTorrent. So it's gotten, I mean, harder I think in since we started the podcast to get obscure things because um I mean, it's, I mean, you can still get them, but it's more work in some ways to pirate right. them. Well, and uh, downloading it so that you like have a file that you own has gotten harder. Uh, but at the same time, there's like a proliferation of things like streaming sites or you know ways of accessing sure. something without owning it that are still pirate in the sense that they are unauthorized. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a whole different. Path, you know, yeah. they're unauthorized, but they're not. Um, I don't think it's the same thing as like. Uh, when you rip something off TV and then you put it on a pirate site and then everybody has it, it's there's, um, that's so robust, you know, that's so resilient, like that files everywhere. Um, as opposed to, you know, uh, these streaming sites are more like whack-a-mole. They seems like everyone's got a large 
database every few weeks they disappear and you find a different one you know sure and the torrent sites are still going oh yeah and and torrenting still exists because there's legitimate uses of torrenting uh if you like download linux well i I still can routinely get things but it's uh and i don't think it actually changes like the content of our episode in a way it's just more like instead of piracy being this like really salient present thing it's more like this is a thing that the companies managed to beat back by being more, at least in this country, yeah, by being, you know, offering them better, cheaper, more convenient product that people were willing to accept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's and all carrot and stick too, and also doing certain scare campaigns. Certain scare like campaigns, that. I think, also worked. Yeah, but I think that even if piracy isn't as salient a concern. It's still like this looming threat. It like it still puts constraints on what they can charge and what they can do. Yeah, it constrains the in market sort of invisibly. In a, in yeah, a useful way actually because it forces them to at least make things convenient. Because if it's not convenient, you're gonna just go pirate it, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what happens to me anyway. I'll basically use the legit service anytime I can, and then if you just will not make something easily available to me, like where I can click and quickly get it, well then you know. Yeah, so 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 that feels like yeah. a difference, I think, from when we did that episode. Is that like, yeah, yeah it's it's moved into this world of sort of invisible constraint on the market. Well, uh, my biggest thing about this episode, and the reason I was so impressed with it, was I think all of the things that we said remain scarce, remain scarce. Like, you don't think we we're f- straight up wrong about any of them? Some of them are really critical now, and I think even were six years ago. Do you want me to just, just list all? Just them? rattle them off. Okay, so I'm just gonna list them. So here's the 14 things. They're in four categories. So I'll give you categories too. Under the category of time, there's attention, convenience, first release, novel real-time experiences, originals, and potential. And we talk about potential a lot. That's like if you kickstart or something, you know, you're, you're ransoming your talent. It doesn't exist until people pay for it. Right. That's why you can't pirate it or rip it off. It's because it doesn't even exist. Right. Uh, under the next category, space. And that's just, there's just one, land. Land is scarce. Um, and, and in fact, I've seen compelling evidence uh, and this relates to Piketty too, uh, uh, one of the things we reviewed, that virtually all of the inequality rise that's documented in Piketty's book can basically be explained through land prices. And as other things get less scarce, land just eats the value. Mm-hmm. It just landlord Landlords just like swallow up those rents, yeah. Yeah, as you like, well, you don't need to buy a stereo and a TV anymore because you have a phone that does both great, just pay me more in rent, you know? And it's like, yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's like a really interesting one, I think, because, you know, that ain't going anywhere. The next category is matter. There's two in that one, computation, which we talked about a lot, and raw materials, which until we have like automated mining, raw materials are going to be a big issue. And then the last category is human interaction. This is where we have the the softest ones, but I still think we did pretty good. Empathy. So that's like in Mm -hmm. the case of a therapist or an artist. I do have one niggle about that. We can jump back to that in a second. Uh, One is goodwill. So you're buying goodwill by like donating to a Patreon or a political campaign or something. Uh, another is belonging. You want to access, you know, you want to say you're a member of a group. Uh, another is privacy. We talked about how as de facto privacy uh, decreases, you might pay more to have more privacy. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's exactly happened, but there are certainly companies that will charge you money to promise you privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how well that actually works. And then the last one, uh, number 14 is status. And status is really, I think, the... That's the one to rule them all because that can scale endlessly. Potentially, we could all be just engaged well, status in status and games a, forever. Status and attention, I think, are the ones to rule them all. Yeah, yeah, those are the two that seem like most critical. But I feel like those alone, yeah, 
are what are, are part of the reason that I don't necessarily buy the strong technological unemployment argument as much because just status and attention could, I think, drive a lot of dollars chasing hands if we culturally wanted it to. Right. I mean, you know, again, there's a big if. Which it seems we did to that. <laughs> it seems that we don't want to end the drudgery of work, but instead want to continue to punish people who don't work. So it seems like, and it seems like we want status with just an insatiable appetite. And of course we have l- real limits on our attention. So uh, yeah, it does seem like those are the best sort of strategies um, for having some kind of a business or something in the, as in the future. Um, I do want to mention one thing about empathy because we had an interesting discussion of empathy and about how, you know, you might particularly want like an art piece to be made by a human just so that you know it was just because that's part of the communication of the art. And uh, I feel like we left out in that discussion, but later in another episode, um, we did cover this that like, as algorithmic art gets better and more accepted, what's really going to happen is I think just transference where you're going to transfer the artist quality, the empathy quality to the designer who programmed the AI or the designer who programmed the AI that programmed the AI and on and on. There's and still on. usually a human in the chain that you can point to if what you're craving is like an artist. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, there's maybe a point at which it's enough levels removed or like corporate feeling enough or whatever that it doesn't like you could still put that transference on it, but it's. Yeah, but I think that just comes down to like good branding. And yeah, stuff, I guess. Right? I mean, branding like, is just a type of this. If anyway. you just like do good branding, you won't have that problem. But yeah, I think people will people will associate the empathy thing with either a brand or a meta creator as easily as they do with the real creators. So that was my only one where I was like, well, I don't think that's that much of a defeater, but I think, um, well, we should have mentioned that, but I don't think it actually changes the point that we were making there. Like ultimately, right? just in the case of art, like I think empathy is still a valuable scarcity. Um, like in the case of like your therapist or something, which is another right. Example. You could have a robot therapist that makes facial expressions and says the right things, but if you know that it's not a human being who's had human experiences, does that kind of like make it feel not like you're having a human connection? You know, if you need like what what these robots won't have is like authentic human upbringings. <laughs> Right. And histories. Right. And even if they can fake empathy toward you, you may not be able to feel empathy toward them, which may still be a barrier. Yeah. Right. right. I mean, that's the thing. It's like right. the product could be exactly the same, but for it doesn't sit right with you in your head. Right. 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 And then, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure about that because I also think sometimes people have, you know, empathy with their VCRs. You know, like I think people yeah. anthropomorphize things so readily. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe that one is the, maybe that's the one out of the 14 that I'm not a hundred percent sure about. Well, and the other thing is that like, but the thing about that too is like in order to have these like thought experiments where you problematize it, you have to suppose the kind of human equivalence almost that I already would grant would cause technological unemployment. Like if, again, if you literally emulate a brain, if you're literally copying a human, then we're just in a different world, right? Like maybe there is mass technological unemployment in that world. Also, maybe the AIs are going to destroy the world. Like maybe there's much bigger issues. Just employment may not be a useful concept in that world. So that's still like, like, yeah, all the whole capitalist structure breaks down under a world where like, you know, machines are human level. So I'm still willing to grant this sort of like vague singularity point of being possibly relevant. It's just like, you know, uh, there's a long, uh, a fair amount of time before then that I'm less concerned about. Um, 
So I want to cue off of attention, okay. right? Yeah. Okay, because you brought that up uh, and we brought that up in that episode in 10. If you go back a little bit to five. Yeah. Five is we asked the question, are we addicted to technology? Right. I didn't re-listen to this one. Okay. So what was this one like? Well, the framework is still good. The framework is addiction is defined as you know, continued use of something in the face of consequences. Right. You use, you text while driving, you crash your car, uh, and then you get your car fixed up, you get out of the hospital, and you text while driving again. Right. Right? And you're you know that you shouldn't, but yeah. you're just doing it anyway. Right. Um, yeah. But just texting a lot, because you like texting, that's not addiction. Right, that's a habit. That's just a habit. Right. Uh, now, if you text a lot, and then, uh, you know, you ruin your date because you're not paying attention or you text a lot and you regret afterwards that, oh, I should have been paying more attention texting less or something. Like, I, I sort of missed something cool that just happened. Yeah. Um, you know, if you regret can immediately turn something from just a habit to an addiction, right? It's all about your perceived consequences and your inability to stop even though you perceive those consequences. Right, right, right. If you are perceiving a consequence and you cannot stop or you cannot summon the willpower to stop, that's where we're defining it. And the consequences are highly subjective, um, right? Because it's all about what you feel is a problem. Right. Um, I still think that's a good framework to look at whether something is actually addictive or not, right? And just to talk about addiction in general. Um, I think that... Now, we were a bit, opt I think, overly optimistic on one point in that episode. Oh, what was that? Well, I mean, we were talking about how in a lot of these cases, the technology can kind of, the, what appears as addiction is kind of a glitch that the technology can fix, right? Texting while driving can be fixed by self-driving cars. Right. Playing online game all day while your body atrophies can be fixed by immersive VR that makes you move around. Right. Even the like, you know, I'm using social media too much and not getting my work done could be fixed by AI assistant that takes charge and motivates you to get your stuff done. Or they have like this software where you can set it to block you from your own yeah. social media at certain times or something. I think that's true. I think, you right. know, addiction has technological fixes. Heroin has, you know, methadone or uh, whatever. Right, right. Uh, yeah. I don't think that that's not true. Yeah. I just think that like attention, which is where I wanted to go with this, really problematizes this. Uh, this idea of being optimistic about this at all, mm. right? Because we weren't talking when we did that episode about the framework of attention. I think the first time we started talking about that is episode 10. And then we came back to it in many episodes. I think there's a whole episode even just about that issue. Mm. And I think now that's kind of in the modern <laughs> parlance. I mean, this is something that we kind of like got right, like a, a little ahead of the curve on. But I think we were we definitely weren't ta discussing it in that way then as a war for attention mm -hmm. that's going on, and I think that 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 is basically endless as we were just saying right it remains scarce, and that basically always creates an environment that can addict you, right? I mean because it just creates an ever, I mean it I, creates an incentive to addict you right because if you want my attention. And if we want to talk about television, this is like flow is the same idea, right? Yeah, if you yeah. want my attention, then you want to enthrall me and catch me and keep me watching, which is, that's habit forming, right? Yeah. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to have negative consequences, but once you have some negative consequences because your attention needs to go somewhere else, like to your driving or to whatever else that it is that you're trying to do, then you know, you're in addiction territory. 
So yeah, I mean, I think absolutely the way that technological addiction is shown when it exists is often through a deficit of attention. So I think there's kind of no escaping that. Uh, I mean, in the way that like you could have a technological fix for almost all of the traditional addictions in the world where you go in and, you know, put your brain in a scanner and it zaps you and all of a sudden you don't want to gamble your life savings away. You're just fixed, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine your favorite magical technology that's going to like fix your brain. And yet this sort of economic incentive, and I think this extends beyond the death of capitalism. Because I think this is potentially just a human incentive to want to be paid attention to, mm. want to want to persuade people, to want to have eyeballs on you, to want to command the attention of others mm-hmm. that, you know, creates a battle. And that battleground is vast, you know, on a network. And that that's like going to kind of always create an environment where there's going to be this like low level threat of you getting addicted. Yeah. If you have the personality type that can do that. So I don't know. I'm way less optimistic about that than I guess we were. Yeah. I mean, I think there are some technological uh, incentives that might be countervailing. Like, uh, you know, I think we've talked a little bit about this sort of thing in the past, but like uh, someone who sells you a device has different incentives than someone who is uh, providing you a uh, free web service, right? So the person who's providing you a free web service like wants to keep you enthralled, keep you watching so they can keep the dollars rolling in but the person who sells you a device might have an incentive to sell you like a attention minder software that allows you to specifically say like if i'm ever watching anything for more than 20 minutes turn it off yeah yeah and uh so as long as those counter incentives exist it's i'm more hopeful that there will be at least a toolbox to fight this stuff with no, it doesn't have um, to be as pernicious as it as it can be, which but, you know, in yeah. some ca- corners of the internet, it's pretty bad. I it's mean, pretty bad. I mean, I mean free to play mobile games are some of the worst areas you could look at. But I mean, or right. or the way some of these social networks work, I mean, it's it's gotten pretty bad. But, but the only power center really able to help you with that is like Google or Apple, like the people who make the phones, for example. Yeah, like they could give you a. A system level override. It, again, it's all about how you feel about it, right? Because you could spend all day in front of the TV and be like, I feel great about that. Right. You know, it was a sick day from work. Like, that's what you wanted to do. Great. Right. Right. It's all about like, what's the, do you feel regret after? But yeah, let's talk about TV because they're, okay. uh, we're, we're jumping ahead in the timeline here, but episode 20. Oh yeah. This was, was a good one. Was what is the future of television? And uh, I want to hear your thoughts on this because this is one you kind of led. Uh, more so than me, and you had some like concrete predictions in this. I did, and I basically will stand by them. None of them have come up yet. There are some things that are happening even faster than I expected. We'll get to that. But I think that the biggest prediction that I made, which I still stand by, is that 2023 is going to be like a watershed year uh, because sports subsidization of the cable package is going to finally end, I think. And you know, I was predicting at that point that or the sports uh, leagues would go over the top and would go direct to consumer. And it looks like that's already happening, right? I mean... You're talking specifically with the NFL contract. Yeah, the sport. NFL contract with CBS goes up in 2023. Yeah. So at least until then, you're going to still have the biggest, most important games. I think the Super Bowl is coming up this weekend. So, you know, that'll be on CBS. Like, you're going to watch that on CBS. That's what uh, is going to happen until 2023, even though that seems crazy now in 2020 that seems nuts but for the next three few years that's going to still happen and then you know maybe they just sign another deal and things continue on and you know but i predict that they won't i predict that that by that time 
all of this stuff is going to be available through your smart TV or through your phone or through some other direct-to-consumer app-based delivery mechanism. And it's already starting to happen. All the major leagues have apps. And uh, there's ESPN Plus, which is a streaming sports service, which is, um, you know, consolidating some of the sports together. And, you know, I don't know exactly how it's going to shake it out, but I think that the era of big sports subsidizing cable television is going to abruptly end. Well, and you were implying that the downstream consequence of that is that you're not, you you can't pay for sort of like the middle tier of television anymore. Right, right. right. And I'm basing that on what happened to feature films when the, when something similar happened. And I predicted in that episode that we would be continuing on on like a golden age of television and that wouldn't end until 2023 and we are here in 2020 and we're you know making 500 plus series a year television is bigger than it's ever been and what is not surprising is that the buyers are primarily streaming services they're either netflix or the other uh silicon valley streaming services or they're these new uh emerging streaming services that the that the television studios themselves are creating but these services are they're rapidly coming online and i think i thought that at least temporarily we would have an unbundling of all this stuff. But I think that was wrong about that. I think that the rebundling is happening now already. And uh, things like Netflix and Hulu uh, and Amazon are already rebundling everything up in anticipation of this change. And those bundles may end up supporting more content than I thought. But I, I actually still stand by this idea that it's going to bifurcate. And we're going to see more high-end stuff. You know, Amazon's doing Lord of the Rings. And we're going to see more low-end stuff. Like, if you look at how much cheap reality is being put out on Netflix right now, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and that's, I think, that's what I think we should expect. We should expect more big mainstream entertainment. And that, by and, the way... And, and a lot of little stuff. What? That, the other name, for, that's just the superstar effect again. Yes. Right? It's the same economic principle. Yes. And we're seeing superstar effect also with the streaming services themselves. Like, you know... I don't know whether it's going to be Netflix or Disney or Peacock or HBO Max, but one of these is going to win. It's going to get most of the market, and then the rest of these services are going to be uh, fighting for scraps, I think. And that rebundling has the potential to support some middle-range stuff if that's what the people end up wanting. But I think what it will do is it'll do this thing that we talked about in the episode that we wanted to see more of, which is it'll fund more small bets. And I think Netflix is the best example of that right now. They're making relatively small investments and they have no idea what's going to be a hit. They just throw it all up online and see what people do and you know, promote the stuff that does well. It's like the VC strategy, basically. Apply, yeah, yeah. Apply and, to, and we've yeah, we've discussed that for a long time. And yeah. yeah, it just seemed like why was nobody doing it? So Well, and I, I think why people weren't doing it, uh, I think there is actually a reason for that, which is uh, it's the finance model. It's that... Getting small things financed is really hard, but getting larger things financed is actually easier because the larger thing has the IP behind it, or it has the big star, or it has it has the thing that will get the finance excited, right, in place. Yeah. But it doesn't have any guarantee of a market. It just has pre-awareness, you know, um, because there's a star, because there's a big book or whatever. And so I think what was holding it back before was that finance made it 
easier to make a risky large bet than to make a prudent small bet. And now I think that's changed because the superstar effect and the fact that Netflix is basically the decider and they have billions of dollars and they can just look at it like this budget is just not big enough for us to bother meddling. Why don't you just do whatever and we'll see if it's good. How much room do you think there is for superstar shows? Cause that was something we did talk about. Like, you know, if you had a really, I mean, yeah, that's I mean, the, the NFL is or something. Yeah. The, the, yeah, exactly. The NFL is huge. Uh, Netflix is huge, et cetera. They can do their own services, direct to consumer. But, you know, can you have a show just organically get big enough? Yeah. yeah, whether it's Game of Thrones or whatever, that it just goes direct to consumer. Yeah, absolutely. I think if something like Game of Thrones or Walking Dead were to go direct to consumer, uh, they could totally make it work. They could have an app on your smart TV that's just the Walking Dead app. And, you know, you just click it and you're, and you're watching and you sign in and you pay them or whatever. It seems like I think it absolutely can happen. There might be a bit of a consumer backlash. That's what that. I was going to say. I think psychologically... One thing that we like, I think we talked about and we weren't sure what the answer was, but but what the way it seems to have shaken out is that for media in particular, there's a psychological thing where subscription is just beating a la carte in a big way, right? I mean, everything's available both ways now, right? You can buy a la carte on Amazon. And in fact, for your viewing habits, that might be cheaper. But um, I this affects me too. I, I find that the incentives... Uh, like when you pay a relatively low subscription fee, then your incentive is to watch as much as you can with that service because you want to get your money's worth or whatever. And then when you're paying by the unit, even if it's a smaller fee, you have this incentive to like watch as little as you can get away with. It's almost the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it makes you like really consider, oh, do I really want to watch this now? And, you know, is this is this really important? And uh, where it's like the all-you-can-eat model is like the opposite. It really encourages consumption because you already paid and it's mm -hmm. no additional cost to you. So I, I, it does seem like psychologically people are just more inclined to go with the subscription model. Um, so I, I'm of the opinion at this point that that will win. Um, not that there will be no a la carte. It will exist as an option. Um, but... I think that the bigger model, the model that people use to sort of base their financing decisions on and stuff is going to be subscriptions. Do you still think product placement is going to rise relative to advertising? Oh, that's happening. I mean, that, I mean, that, is that, that, that has been happening, but do you still feel you feel like that's a robust trend? Me very robust. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, the reason I ask the question yeah. is if you're sort of rebundling and like just crowning, you know, new superstars that are these platforms, like, yeah. does that make old advertising work fine again? No, I think that the streaming model is one of no advertising. People don't seem to accept ads on services. I mean, Netflix has no ads, but some of the other services Right, do. Netflix and uh, Amazon don't have ads. Hulu has an ad tier and a non-ad tier. They YouTube have, has ads. Uh, right, and they will charge you to get rid of the ads, right? Which, right, I mean tiers, you know, yeah. Yes, it's true that ads exist, and uh, Spotify also, same thing, they'll do ads or you can pay to maybe ads. that just gets out competed because people don't like ads but i think basically that's getting out competed and there's a certain number of people who are you know either kids or they don't have a lot of income or something who sit through the ads because that's their option but i think people who can afford it are buying the ad free versions of these services and i also think the effectiveness of ads has gone down too i just imagined like a cliche like rich person calling someone an ad watcher yeah <laughs> for being lower class yeah yeah i think that yeah that's funny i mean 
Just saying ad watcher with like a tone of scorn. Like, yeah, we'll be, uh, <laughs> you're, you're basically a mind control victim, right? I mean, it, I think the, you know, the, the, the snooty, uh, rich person has something of a point, uh, you know, like, uh, you, you know, you're, you're subjecting your mind to, uh, this thing that, that hypnotizes people and makes them want things they don't need. And the rest of us, uh, who can afford the seven ninety nine a month or whatever it is, don't have to do that. But yeah, I think that advertising is getting less and less effective. The lot, the line between what is advertising and what is, you know, content is blurring ever more. Brands are going to a greater length to disguise when they are actually making ads. And a lot of advertising now is done through social media. So it's not even an ad or content in the traditional narrative sense. It's, you know, an influencer being paid to subtly include a product in their daily life. Right. And then the exposure to the product is the ad. It's, right. And so, yeah, you know, it's, it's still so, an attention war. It's just a slightly different disguise. Yeah. Thing. Well, and that's one that can cause unemployment because that's cutting out the media production team, the ad agency, the right. It's cutting out a lot of the middlemen that used to make and distribute the ads. Right. It's like, we'll just go straight to someone who is like a friendship performance artist and be like, hey, for all the people that you perform friendship with. Why don't you, you know, drink a Coke in front of them and then uh, they do that and then we pay them. I think that, I think we are getting closer and closer to, do you remember that book, Super Sad True Love Story? Did you read that book? Yeah, I don't, it, my memory of it's pretty So vague. it's got a lot of science fiction ideas in it, some which are good and some which are not good, but one that was good is it had secret hosts, which are people who uh, are paid by a company to advertise to, directly to their friends in person, right? So they have a tracker on their body that's tracking the words they say and every time they say coca-cola in a conversation they get a dime or something you know you sign up for this as yeah, a service yeah, yeah. it's like something you could do in a kind of post-work world and i think we're getting closer and closer to that reality like we're basically you know influencers are secret hosts they're just they don't do it person to person they do it through the internet because that's you know that makes the economics work yeah yeah and that's one of those like hyper capitalist hellscape ideas <laughs> but you know yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, that's a, uh, maybe like a broad shift that I've had in the course of doing this podcast. Like, I'm, I no more want that dysto- type of dystopia, but I, I buy much more than it's likely to happen, I think. I mean, I think, uh, I wouldn't say I'm more pessimistic because there's plenty of things I am optimistic about, right? But I think that on that particular point, <laughs> like, you know, like how sort of like, crassly capitalist are we willing to be and how married to that are we that like line and i just feel like we're very married to it <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, very yeah. sticky and yeah the notion that we're gonna go around trying to say words to each other to like make dime make like micro <laughs> payments like go into our bank accounts i mean yeah that's silly i mean i'm sure that i'm sure i'm sure it's not gonna look exactly that silly but i mean it. <laughs> But like, how much sillier is that than the real world? I think it's only a little only bit. Only slightly yeah, more yeah, silly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, I hope it doesn't go that way, but I, I, I'm I maybe more willing to accept that kind of ridiculous scenario. Okay, what's next? And this is jumping way ahead, but that's what I got in front of me, is episode 52. This is one of the ones that I re-listened to because I wanted to re-listen to it. Uh, not because I was trying to pick a fight with myself. That's what is the future of synthetic meat. Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't remember this one virtually at all, so yeah. fill me in. Because the episodes that 
for me as a listener are most interesting are the ones that are kind of like rereading an old research paper. Right, right. Where it's like, I like read a bunch about something and I had a bunch of opinions about something three years ago and now I sort of forget them. Right. I learned something, but I didn't use it. Now it's kind of weak. Yeah. Reminded. Yeah. So I went back to that and I still think that's a good episode. I think like the technology has definitely progressed. It was like, even when we were doing that episode, I had a sense that it had, progressed past the point of what i was aware of Uh uh-huh so when we did that did we know about beyond meat and impossible burger no well i was gonna get to that but let's just jump to that now okay which is that that was not discussed we did not discuss all these plant-based meat alternatives which is like that's the giant thing that did not get discussed yeah because we were talking about the actually synthetic meat as in grown from cell cultures yeah yeah yeah. right that's like actual like animal proteins that are grown Mm -hmm. we touched upon you know a couple other things like eating insects right farming insects and locusts and things but we didn't talk about like all these plant-based meats right and that's pretty interesting because that's exploded as a market yeah and i mean i routinely meet people that are like oh yeah i don't need to eat a real burger again possible is good enough for me yeah like i've 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 met a lot of people that Express that to me. Sure. I did kind of wonder, like, does this kind of steal the thunder of the synthetic meat? Because that needs funding to get off the ground. Oh, well, I think it'll provide or, the funding. Or does it accelerate it? I bet beyond well, that was what are I, the people who do it. That was Well, that was what I found. It looked like that market opening up is acting more like that's going to help kick things off for the real synthetic meat. Because I was, you know, vaguely concerned that like, well, if the plant-based meat is good enough and that like already and people are willing to accept that. Yeah. Then like, you know, how well, I much, saw they how have, much funny. Uh, yeah. Beyond Chicken now at one of the fast food chains or something. I just saw an ad. For oh, yeah. Food. Yeah. And the big thing was that they have the impossible Burger King or something like that was. a yeah. big th- Like deal. that was a big milestone. So, yeah, like, yeah you can get these um, these products uh, places now. But the products are still at a point where they can um, imitate, you know, processed meats, you know, like uh, ground beef. But they're not like, they don't have steak, right? Like beyond steak. Impossible steak. Like, I haven't uh, heard of that. Like, I still feel like cuts of meat are um, a level of complexity that they have not well, and ma- that's, mastered. I mean, that would also be far off for the synthetic meat. So... Like, it's really hard to just make the synthetic meat. And they, like, you know, they, they've figured out sort of now, it seems like, how to get fat into it, uh, which is a challenge. But you've got to exercise the meat, maybe, like, grow a fake skeleton. There's, like, the right. the, cult, the the cell, like, uh, growth medium that you need. Right. Like, there's just a lot of obstacles. And they, like, grow in these very thin sheets and stuff. I mean, there's... I, I'm not up on all of the improvements that have been made since I did the episode. I mean, the cost has come way down. I mean, just to give you an idea, like we were talking about that $300,000 burger, which was like maybe like a year or two before we did the podcast. Yeah. And now it looks like the cost is for like, you know, uh, ground beef, like that synthetic would be like 50 to $100 per pound I saw. Oh, wow. Which is pretty good. Huge difference. Um, yeah, huge difference. So there's been big improvements that these companies are claiming. Again, some of this is like, you know, believe it when you see it right so i'm sure there's a little bit of like marketing exaggeration um but yeah i don't think all none of them are aiming for like a cut of steak 
Right, right, right. Like right. they're aiming for like the same thing. Like like the early products are going to be what they call unstructured meat, which right, is exactly right, right. what you're talking it's about. It's the like, easiest thing like to do. Like ground beef, the inside of a chicken nugget. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. No, and in my very quick research that I did today, it looked like that as far as getting funding for synthetic meat, the like explosion of plant-based meat products is only helping that. That's what I would guess. So that's that's not surprising. Yeah. Do you remember the tagline that we came up with for that episode? No. What was our tagline? Eat your cow and have it moo. <laughs> I just wanted I wanted an excuse to say that again. <laughs> That's good. It rhymes with the uh, Yeah, we I mean this is we episode put some thought into this. This was episode fifty two. Our, our quality standards were much higher. We, we came were, up with like a good pun. To, we started the episode with a good pun. I mean, you yeah. know, we're not we're not doing that anymore, guys. No, Sorry. we had like a level of uh a dedication, I think, at that point, you know, <laughs> that we just can't match now. I think that was an episode that I had a lot of fun recording. And one of the things yeah. that we also talked about in that was marketing, was like because I mean it's just it's an issue you always come back to with synthetic meat. It's like, how do you persuade people to actually eat this stuff? Right. Right? And so we had talked about the various names. And so, like, some of them, which we agreed were bad, like Schmeet. <laughs> um, and so, like, as I was looking around today, I stumbled into a, a poll that somebody did. And this is a different lineup of names than we had when we did that episode. Right? Some of these are new. So 47% of people voted for slaughter-free meat. Which actually disproves what we said. We thought that those would be the worst names, like you're slaughter free, you're cruelty free. Yeah. Because that's I saying don't want to the word. Slaughter. Yeah. That's it's like saying pesticide free, right? Yeah. But um so but I don't know. For in this particular poll, that was the winner. Slaughter free okay. meat. Yeah. Now slaughter, I think, is not as bad as cruelty free. So maybe that's better. Um forty three percent Slaughter is very gruesome. I don't really want to ever hear the word slaughter if I can help it. Yeah. Oh, and I guess it's not forty seven percent like voted. I think it's more like, you know, what percentage of people approved of it. Uh -huh. So that's still sub fifty. Sure. Uh forty three percent for craft meat. Oh yeah, that's a good one. It's like craft beer. Craft meat is good. Craft meat just sounds real, you know, authentic y. <laughs> uh forty two percent for clean meat. Okay, no, I don't like that. No, and actually, like saying clean meat makes me think it's dirty for some. Well, that reason. really angers people in the meat industry too, because it makes all other meat look dirty. Right, right. Uh, and oh yeah, and speaking of that, like quick tangent, you know, the farm and livestock lobbies uh, do not like the idea of synthetic meat, and they're already like launching like lawsuits to say restrict the usage of terms like beef Ugh. on products, for example. Right. So yeah, quick tangent. It's like almond milk, you know, they've been trying for years to like. Make it so you can't call it on. Yeah, and they lost that battle. So yeah. I think they're going to lose this one. But Hopefully. anyway. Yeah. Um, but 37% of people approved of cultured meat. Yeah, I'm good with cultured meat. Well, because it sounds cultured. It's, it's a, I mean, totally different meaning. Yeah. But it sounds, it sounds nice. <laughs> it's been to the opera. Yeah. And then 40% cell-based meat, which is somewhat all, accurate, but boring. All, all meat's cell-based, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's also true. <laughs> I don't know if that's descriptive enough. Yeah, you're right. Maybe that's not even accurate. I mean, it is accurate, but it's 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 it's, it's a little not, broad. Does not distinguish it. Yeah, I didn't see. I I've never seen anyone call it designer meat, but I still think that was something we oh, came up yeah. with in the episode that I still think is good. Designer meat is good. Yeah, that's for your more expensive. You know, yeah. meat. You you fill out a flavor profile and they cook they cook it up special for you. Also, in that episode, I talked a lot about this company just because it was convenient. Um, they had a lot of information online at the time called Modern Meadow. Mm. That company is, I think, just working on le le leather goods. They claimed ah. at the time that we did that episode that they would be out luxury leather goods, like fake leather, of course, uh -huh. that doesn't kill animals, Right, be out in 2017. Uh, and they've obviously missed that benchmark. 
and there's not a lot of info on their site. So they seem like they're still around. Yeah. But uh but not but they're not like when you when you like read the 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 articles and the papers that are coming out now about this stuff, their name doesn't get mentioned. By the way, no one says synthetic meat. It feels like I'm the only person that that uses that term, but to me that is clear. Yeah, we use synthetic in let go, right? He asks if you want natural or synthetic salmon strips or something, right? And yeah, synthetic, um, I think you and I like that term because we like synthesizers. synthesizers and just technology in general. But um, I think that might squick people. I, I like designer a lot. I mean, obviously plant-based works really well for the plant-based ones because it allows them to avoid saying vegan or vegetarian while appealing to those people, which I think is very key for their business strategy, right? They have to get the vegans and vegetarians first without uh, scaring away other folks um, in order to sell enough of what they're selling. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I think they, I think plant-based, you know, they probably went through a bunch of iterations on that. They, th- that was a smart one, but yeah, I really like designer meat. I want that to come back, uh, come around. Let's talk a little bit about 58, which 58 yeah. is, uh, well, that's the top 10 sci-fi. Cliche. Oh yeah. And that's one of the ones I didn't listen to because I like it. But I'm glad you did because it's been a while for me. And I listened to it because it was my favorite one. When I looked through all of the list of all of it, that was the one that I smiled the biggest when I looked at the heading. And I read it. I, I listened to it again. And what I love about it, if you just like are someone who this is the future and you've found this podcast right now and you've never listened to our podcast before and you're somehow at this point in this episode, uh, I would say jump to this one because uh, it is the densest episode i think we ever did like it's just full of stuff i think it's got a really great um i mean we did we went through 10 different like major failure modes for speculation in science fiction things that have been bothering you and me and that we have been discussing informally for literally years and we i think did a pretty good job of categorizing them giving examples uh there's a huge list on the on the website uh, on the post itself of like every piece of art we referenced in the in the episode and i i'm just proud of us for our completeness and uh a thoroughness in this episode it, it it's one of the few episodes that meets my own personal standards of completeness and like i'm just like yeah okay we nailed that we really like pointed out a whole bunch of things and you know like listening back to it i realized some of this stuff has gotten better lately some of this stuff is not as much of a problem as it was when we discussed it but I think all of it is still relevant and still, if you are uh, at all interested in writing science fiction that with a speculative bent, it will it will be useful to you to like listen to this and, and, and have it help you get out of your head and avoid some of these um, speculation problems that, that a lot of things have. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think my only, like we gave names to, actually, yeah, we did give pretty good names to all of them. So yeah, like, I mean... I almost it's you know what I want is I almost want like one of those like posters with like icons of them or something. Yeah. The like because I want to be yeah. able to like reference these like easier, but I can never think of the names like when I want to. Yeah, it's like Super Now and uh Boot so- in the Face Dystopia. The Sofilarity. Sofilarity, which we stole from somebody. I love that one. In the podcast we call it Primacy of Reality, but for some reason we wrote it as Primacy of the Real in our list. And that has always bothered me because reality is 
the better word there. What I well, that's the one that got uh, cited by John Danner in some paper. That's right. Well, it sounds academic. He, I think he used that one. Yeah, right. I mean, it sounds like we're French because the way we yeah. use the real, like we're Baudrillard. And just to summarize for people who haven't heard the episode, that's the idea that real thing, quote unquote, real things are inherently better than virtual things. Right. That the real world's always better than the virtual world, or that the the human is always better than the robot you know in the in the key area or whatever there's like a magic premium on something being quote-unquote real yeah it's this obsession with reality uh and the way that shows up in sci-fi is it's always you had all these adventures with this great robot friend or in this wonderful virtual reality but at the end of course what you need to do is return back to being a human again you know and doing real things my absolute favorite part of that episode uh john is your rant about creative ai (laughs) So this is related to that because you you get very excited at one point about um, the common trope of, you know, an AI being depicted as super creative, like it cures cancer, it solves the world's problems, it runs society, and then it has a speech where it's like, yeah, but I can't be creative. <laughs> right and no there's a literally a book stupid right you talk about this uh this canadian book that has uh that has that in it and there's always some stupid hand wave as to why it, it's not real creativity it's it misunderstands even what creativity is right because you know just like recombining new ideas is something that like a computer can do now like we have creativity and things that are not even conscious. This is also, by the way, one of the only episodes that we ever got sort of a nod of approval from someone else. Uh, like he's like big in this like field. Oh, which was it? Robin Hansen. Like, this Oh, episode. What did he say about it? I don't remember that. I don't know. Robin he just said, said good job. Or oh, he, he, he sent us a little email, right? Yeah. Yeah. He, he's reached out to us a couple of times. I remember when he told, he praised our review of her too, because he said we caught some mistake in it that he had not noticed or something. Yeah, I mean, look, we're not economists, uh, we're not nope. uh, engineers, uh, but you know, we are storytellers. Uh, I mean, you're literally—that's your job. Yeah, um, that's sort of indirectly, and it's my job. But it's your training, and you have a lot of experience with it. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's this is sort of our area of expertise, which is why this is a good episode. I mean, like you know, we. we uh, you know, we, we can talk a little bit about Moore's Law, but we, we know it makes stories bad. <laughs> yeah, think. yeah. Well, Which is why we did a lot of reviews recently, right? It's just we kind of like ran out of things to review. And when we were when we were starting the podcast, we really were reading a lot more uh, nonfiction because we were building that let go world. So we were trying to figure out, well, what are the best predictions about this? And yeah, that, you know. so yeah, you mentioned an episode that's good. I think something I will do, listeners, and that we will do is I think we're going to probably compile a best of list that we'll post on our website. Yeah. Uh, and the you, website and the archive and everything are not going anywhere. We're going to keep all that available. That's all going to be online. So I figure like, yeah. I don't know, some of you maybe have already listened to all of our episodes or been here since like we started doing this. If so, awesome. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Well. Uh, but if you stumbled into this at some later point, there are some times we did reasonably good. <laughs> so we'll, we'll We'll compile a list. Well, we focused today on uh, earlier episodes and episodes that are more evergreen. If you listen to, I think, almost any of the first 50 or so episodes, they'll probably have some, you know, retaining relevance. I think the ones that hold up the least well are the discussion episodes because those are the ones where we were most. Now, some of those cuff. are good. It, they, those are but like some are good. It's You're like right. every other. Yeah, it's it's not everyone. So I think, you know, if you are discovering this. And, uh, you know, we're not ruling out never, ever making more 
content of this type. But I think at this time, we really want to focus on making our next comic book. We want to include you guys in that in some way. So we're going to figure out a new format that allow us to do that. I don't know. Send us an email or something. If you've like really actually listened to all of our episodes, that's insane and awesome. And thank you. So yeah, we would love to know that. Well, let us know what you think and and give us your ideas about what you might even want to hear from us in the future is we'll, you know, we'll take them seriously. We're, we're going to do what we're going to do, but we're curious what you think. Until next time. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And you have been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>